0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin and I began our discussion of the testimony of the defendant, Robert Durst, specifically focusing on the direct examination of Durst by defense attorney Dick DeGarren. On today's episode, John concludes his assessment of Durst's testimony under DeGuerin's Direct, offers some general thoughts about his approach to cross-examining the defendant, and tells the story of how he lured the defense into making a foolish strategic blunder. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.
0: A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes in this episode, check out our coverage of the final days of Dick DeGaron's direct examination of his client Robert Durst in Season 2, Episodes 18, 19, and 20 of this podcast. We will also identify a few other relevant episodes over the course of our show today. And, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. We pick up my conversation with John Lewin as he dissects Robert Durst's testimony about the so-called dig note, a piece of paper found in the trash of his South Salem home that had the words, quote, town dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel, or question mark, check cars slash truck, rent, End quote. Among other things, Durst said that the word "dig" referred to the word "digital," and that "town dump" and "boat" referred to his hiring a local high school kid named Barry Weiner or Weiner. Durst used both pronunciations to take a rotting sailboat to the town dump. Here's John Lewin.
2: Now, obviously, when Bob was going through on direct the dig note, I was trying not to laugh. The dig note itself was absolutely. Preposterous in every way, every single part of it, every explanation, kind of tapped by Barry Weiner, who then was clearly made up. And then when I started calling him Barry Weiner and got Bob to call him Barry Weiner, you don't even know the name of the guy you've made up. That became again an even stronger argument on cross when he came up with Danny Cunningham. Same kind of situation. So there were so many. You know, as you know, every lie that he said. I documented and I had, and then I decided what I would hit him with on cross. Remember, a quarter of my cross I didn't use because I just didn't have the time. So, what about coming to Susan's house, discovering her body? Obviously, there's so many things there that jump out as preposterous, but what were the things that surprised you that he said during direct? So, on direct, Bob had said, that when he got to Susan's, that, in fact, the killer was still in the house, okay? That's what he said to Dick. And I was pretty shocked about that because, obviously, if he's still in the house, then how's the body cold? So I thought that was a huge mistake that they made. I picked that up immediately when it was said and made a note, and I came back and covered it with him on cross. And that's when he ended up coming up with uh, her breath was cold. This was a pattern for Bob. And this is what made his cross-examination difficult because, and I said it at a point in time to the judge, is that I had a 200-page outline of all the lies that he's told. But I don't know what he's going to say when he's on pen. So in answering my questions, first on direct, he came up with new lies. Then on cross, when he was lying about the lies he told before, he would be lying in the answer. So it basically made it so that there was a constant um, array of targets. And I had to figure out on the fly, okay, this one I'm going after, this one I'm going to let fly, etc. That was surprising. I thought that on direct, if you remember, Bob ends up admitting that, he told Morris, quote, all about Janine Pirro. Now, that was new. And, in fact, Chip Lewis had made the argument, one of the better arguments the defense made, of, hey, listen, judge, they can't prove Morris knew anything about the circumstances of Bob's of uh, Kathy, et cetera. They can prove he knew Bob's name. They can prove he knew Bob ran away. They can prove he knew Bob was wealthy. But you can't prove the last part. Now, my position, which the judge agreed on, was, wait a minute we can prove it circumstantially. That went away, the necessary to prove it circumstantially, when Bob, on his own, on direct, responds, well, what did you tell Morris? Question by Dick, and Bob says, all about Jeanine Pirro. He then later tries to say, well, when I said all about Jeanine Pirro, I didn't mean what actually happened. So, I was very surprised by that, but when that came up,
0: Lewin next discusses several other statements by Durst regarding, among other things, his relationship with Prudence Farrow, the idea that he removed Kathy's earrings before burying her body, and then, with my prompt, John talks about Durst's testimony that Andrew Jarecki told him what to say during their interviews.
2: He admits that he wanted to pursue a relationship with Prudence, and I asked him, hey, how the situation get resolved? And he literally says, Kathy disappeared. He also said that he found the idea of removing Kathy's earrings made his skin crawl. Now, you can't say things like that when you admittedly are dismembering somebody. When he talked about the dig note and the second boat, you know, that was obviously another huge problem.
0: What about during Direct when he said that Andrew
2: Jurecki gave him the answers? He prepared a script. I mean, that was just absurd. I mean, I remember hearing that, wait, is that the best you have? If you were going to do that, you would have been smarter off not stipulating to the audio and video, calling a lying expert to get up there. Clearly, he was able to get lying experts to testify in the case for him. Get that lying expert up there and say, yeah, this has been doctored. But how on earth are you going to, with a straight face, say he gave me a script? How is he going to logistically do that? When is that going to happen? And because it ended up being half the things he says – How would that even work? So it was one of those things where, again, Bob is very quick with an answer. The answers just most of the time are nonsensical. They don't hold up to scrutiny. So, yeah, I was surprised by that answer because it was absurd. The last area I want to get into today on the direct was Bob's description of his relationship with Nick Chavin and his
0: reflection on Nick's testimony. Was there anything that came up there that
2: surprised you or
0: that you noted for
2: follow-up in your cross? Well, Nick Chaman we knew we had Bob six ways to Sunday. I knew that Nick's testimony was incredibly persuasive. The fact that he had not wanted to give it up originally, which DeGarren tried to use as some kind of indicator that he was lying, just buttressed his credibility. The fact that we knew that Bob's lawyers were going down to meet Nick, were doing everything they could to try to influence him, that he had Susie Giordano out there. I think the jury understood why is the defense doing all this stuff with Nick Shaven, unless Nick Shaven has very damning information. In addition, we had, see, we April 7th or April 8th, 2015, we had the phone call between Bob and Nick. They haven't talked in years. And Bob, after 20 seconds, brings up the dinner in New York. So we knew that there was nothing they could do about Nick shaven literally nothing. And this is an example where, again, a lot of the idiot experts don't understand, is that it is much more difficult when you have a cooperative witness. So as an example, in a domestic violence case, the hardest domestic violence cases are not where the woman comes into court and says, this never happened. I lied when I told the cops. I bumped my head. Because we can prove, well, you said this originally, we can prove that the victim now has a motive to lie, she's under the influence of her batter, et cetera. But the argument that it takes away from the defense is, is that the reason this victim is making it up because they have something against the defendant. So when you have Nick Chabin, who is denying, 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 Had he immediately called us up and said, hey, listen, I've got info on Bob Durst, now Bob could argue, hey, Nick is biased, he has this issue, he's trying to do X, Y, Z. But because Nick so clearly was trying to protect Bob, he was the perfect witness. There was nothing Perry Mason could have done to him. And Perry Mason wasn't sitting at the defense table.
1: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news
0: In the next part of my conversation with John Lewin, he explains his reaction to Robert Durst's testimony that he had told Morris Black about his problems with then Westchester County, New York, District Attorney Janine Piero.
2: So, as you mentioned when we were talking about DeGuerin's directive, Bob, Bob slipped up and he mentioned that he told. Morris Black about Janine Piero. Tell me about how you approached that issue during Cross. Well, so one of the few points that I thought that the defense had effectively made was that, and Chip had made this the whole time, was the best argument he had. Chip's a, a very good lawyer. Chip had said to the judge, hey, listen, judge, you can't bring in the Morris Black stuff because the prosecution's theory is is Bob is killing Morris Black because Morris Black knows everything. But you don't have any evidence that Morris Black knows everything. All you have is he knows Bob's name. He knows Bob's wealthy. He knows Bob has left, has basically gone on the run. But there's no indication that Morris knows anything about Janine Pirro or Bob being charged, et cetera. And our position was always, wait a minute. Circumstantially, we can show that they go to the library every day, Morris is extremely curious, and with the things that Bob has said, it's a reasonable inference that Morris did know, and they can make that argument. In other words, we're not going to take Bob Durst's word for what he did and did not tell Morris because he's not credible. So that was the theory. That was where they were going. And then literally, Bob slips up during direct and says... Dick Esling, and and what did you tell more? So I told him all about Janine Tiro. And I was just shocked that that had come out. So, you know, I knew that it was there. So, you know, I put it in my outline. And that really kind of put to bed one of the small little things that they had. One of the frustrating things about this case was it was so overwhelming that I had to just stop myself from getting annoyed that the jury would have to even debate this at all. Because my position was, if there's any juror who is in any way does not realize that we've proven this case, you know, six ways to Sunday in every way possible, then minor little victories like this aren't going to matter. In other words, if there's anybody out there where this is the tipping point, oh, it turns out that we are able to show that he told Morris. If that's the tipping point, then we've lost that juror anyway. But that being said, you go with what you have. What we had was all of a sudden they had lost a key point that they had been making. The other issue that was very helpful, more helpful, was I knew once that was said that if somehow this case made it to appeal, this was going to reinforce Judge Windham's ruling the same way that we always knew that once the defense agreed, that Bob had written the cadaver, that the Morris Black stuff became even more relevant because we were able to show that, in essence, Bob is giving the same excuse for not having reported Susan's body as he did with Morris. So I think the the biggest victory of that issue was that had it gone to appeal, it was even worse for them.
0: Next, we pivot our conversation to John Lewin's general strategy for questioning Robert Durst on cross-examination.
2: Let us speak broadly about your cross-examination of Bob. First of all, Bob seemed to be enjoying it to a degree. And secondly, he seemed to want to try to provoke you and frustrate you. What was your approach to to that and your strategy for that? Well, so if we back up a minute, the whole design of the cross and where I started was, I wanted to make it as close to New Orleans as possible. Dick gave me a gift when he examined Bob, you know, uh, three feet away from him. If I would have said, I'm not agreeable, it wouldn't have happened. But I said, no, it's fine. As long as we get through the same thing, we're good. So that meant that I was gonna have more of a conversation rather than a traditional examination. And my goal with Bob, and I knew it from the start, again, if there was one juror where cross-examination, where Bob's testimony was going to make a difference, come on. But, you know, in the end, what I was looking for was how can I get Bob to give me more information that he's already given? What does that mean? Well, one is, is that I knew and the percentages kept going up. But by the time of Cross, I thought it was close to 50-50 that Bob would literally get up there and say something like, of course I killed her. Douglas, my father, help me. I thought that was 50-50. So how do I get him to tell me that? Well, the best way is to be conversational and not be aggressive. And that's where I tried to start. Bob immediately made it clear that he was geared up for war with the surf stuff. And then if you remember... Shortly after that, I end up basically saying to him, I gave a little bit of a speech which meant for him of, you listen, the world is watching. Bob, you know, this is your chance. This is your chance to tell us what actually happened. You know, the cameras are here. They're not going to be here when this is over. So anyway, I tried. That's when I realized that he's never going to admit to anything. So the purpose across then was to just... Pretend that I was behind in the case and cover every important inconsistency that he had. So a couple of things. One, I did not impeach Bob on every lie inconsistency. That was intentional because there were times where Bob would get things wrong or where he would lie, and the lie was actually inculpatory. So here's a perfect example. They never figured this out, Ever. Bob always said that he gave Susan two $25,000 checks, one in November and one a couple of weeks later. There is only one check from November and a $25,000 check from a year before. Now, are there ways that that could have happened? There are, but a big fear I had was the defense would figure this out. They would get up and they would argue, well, where's the other check? Bob's saying he gave her 50 grand the last few weeks only one check. You can't trust what Bob says, even when it incriminates him. So my view was, I will only impeach him on things that are material and impeach him. So that's what I did. The second issue was, when I would get frustrated with Bob, or when I would show it, that wasn't for me. I was having the time of my life. I can't stand up and say to the jury in the middle of the cross, do you see what this guy's doing? Do you see how he's lying? Do you see how he's obfuscating? I can't do that. What I can do with my tone and my questions is to convey that that's what he's doing. So people mistook, oh, Bob's getting under Lewin's skin. Not at all. Bob is setting me up so that I can make the point to the jury that he's lying his ass off, and that gives them permission to get upset with him in the way that I was talking Now, does that mean that I'm faking my annoyance with him? Of course not. But that's intentional and that's done for strategic reasons. So I was never, quote, frustrated. I was entertained and I was surprised frequently because he would come up with these lies. Some were so incredible. So for instance, I didn't plan out my response when Bob said that he felt her cold breath. How could I possibly plan that out? How's Bob going to say that? So that incredulous response by me is an honest, legitimate response. When you said she's a stiff, you know, was that just John having fun, or did you choose that word for a reason? No, I mean, I I chose the word for a reason because I want to make the point that not just is she dead, but a stiff generally means someone who's been dead for an extended period of time. When people end up dying, once they end up going into rigor, their body stiffens. That's what stiff means. So it means that they're already in rigor. Right. So that was not an accidental word, and it was conveying the point that I'm making, which is she's long dead and she's breathing on you. And by the way, he was also saying that, you know, again, poor planning. Bob has the killer in the room, but he doesn't understand and doesn't do his homework and his lawyers don't understand that if the killer's there, her body can't be cold. Conversely, if she was killed the night before, she's already going to be in rigor. She's going to be cold and her body's going to be stiff. So, and again, who's the referee on this stuff? You can't make this up. Who's going to decide who's right on this issue in the end, Carrie? I think Carmen. Carmen's going to, Carmen's going to decide who's correct. And the advantage that I had is I think that I understood the technical issues better than the defense did. And I knew where Carmen was going to go with it. So, no, I was not frustrated. There were two moments where, in my listening, I felt that your reaction to Bob, in one case, I thought that it may have squandered an opportunity to really press him. And that was during the whole Lenox Hill hospital cross. He made the crack about you setting a record for number of lines on his teleprompter. He says you've set the record for the the amount of lines, and I say you've set the perjury record. Right. And I thought you were zeroing in there and had him in a corner. He had no response. And his response was to make a joke about the number of lines on his teleprompter. And I just felt That at that moment, I really wanted to hear what he had to say about that. And well, but, but, but he, but he addressed it, Carrie. So what you're saying is, so I will tell you, I am 100% confident that Bob Durst was never, no matter what I did, going to intentionally admit anything. Every admission in this case was an accident on his part, was a misstatement was a mistake. So he had already, his position was, and he said it repeatedly, when I said, are you saying that she's going to rehab at the same place that she's gonna wanna match? Well, they're in the same place, like it would be convenient for her to be doing that. So I knew his response that she was doing that three to five times a week, three to four hours a day. I knew as soon as he said it, I watched Carmen's face. Carmen was very good about not giving up a whole lot. She looked absolutely shocked. I remember she kind of like smiled like, like, what the fuck? So I knew that he was done. Now, why did I end up saying the perjury comment? If you remember, the question had to do with his feelings about Kathy. It had to do with basically like how he felt about his wife. And All he can do after he's demeaned her and all his other bullshit is to make some joke because he's caught. And listen, yeah, I let him have it. Was that something I should have done? No, I shouldn't have. Let's get to the other moment, which wasn't really,
0: I didn't see it as a strategic, you know, misstep by any means. But I just felt that it was sort of out of character for you. And that's when you called him a rat in a cage.
2: Do you remember that moment? Oh, I do. So that one was worse (laughs) than the first one. That one just kind of came out. It came out because I had him on something, and he was doing his little squirming. And, you know, for a second, you're not thinking about where you are. Now, it's an absolutely true statement. He was like a little rat in a cage, and I had him, and I let that out. Now, the issues with that, with those two are not that they harmed my case or not that they prejudiced Bob. They were just on the wrong side of the limit of what I should do professionally. In a six or seven month trial, something goes on for for two years and all the stuff that's gone. I think I had very few moments like that, but those were certainly two. So, yeah, that was certainly not planned. Again, I don't know what he's going to say.
0: If you are interested in our coverage of the moment in the trial when John asked Durst, how could she be breathing? She's a stiff. Check out Season 2, Episode 24, and we cover Lewin's comments about Bob setting the record for perjury and being like a rat in a cage in Season 2, Episode 22. In this final section of today's episode, Lewin speaks about the reenactment of the deadly struggle between Robert Durst and Morris Black, performed in court for the jury by defense attorneys David Chesnoff and Dick DeGuerin. We covered this surreal moment in Season 2, Episodes 20 and 35 of the Jury Duty Podcast. The reenactment of the Morris Black struggle by DeGarren
2: and Chesnoff. Tell me about how that came down. Sure. So one of the things that I always try to do that I also find extremely entertaining is I want to make the defense make as many mistakes as possible. And my favorite kind of mistake to make a defense attorney do is not a mistake where I shoot them as a result of it. It's where I can get them to lift the gun and shoot themselves. And that's not easy. So I see they start off and I know they were going to do it because Jason Galveston, he's going to do a demonstration. I knew in advance it's not going to work because I did not think that Bob was going to be strong enough to participate. So Dick gets up there and they, he wants to do a demonstration. Dick wants him to stand up. Judge says, you can't. Bob says, no, I can do it. And the judge looks at Washington and says, no, no, he's the boss. You're not standing up because it's a safety issue. And Jen says, he's the boss. He says, no, Washington shaking his head. So I see an opportunity, and I say to the guy, Hey, listen, why don't, and I suggest that they reenact this thing. Now, one of the things that I wanted was there is poor lawyering where, the jury doesn't believe what you're doing or where they're angry with what you're doing. And those are effective. But the worst response from a jury is when they are laughing at you because what you're doing is so absurd. So I believe it turned out correctly that if they reenacted this thing, it was going to turn their defense into a joke. And, of course, Chesnoff loves attention. So what's the first thing he does? Well, I need to talk to my agent. That comes out of him. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, can you do me any more favors, dear? This is awesome. Please make a joke of your defense. And that's what they do. They proceed to make a joke of it. Then the two of them are on the ground, and Chesnoff is doing his best traumatic death imitation. And I think he forgets for a moment, this is your client's defense. So here's what was funny. Up until that point, all the commentators were like, these defense attorneys are brilliant. Oh, they have a plan. Lewin is messing this up. The dirt team is messing, you know, CrossFit team is messing this up. These guys are going to, you know, just wait, just wait. And when they do that, you can just see the air out of the balloon. All these think pants on TV who, most of them defense attorneys, who were kissing their ass in every way. These are the greatest lawyers in America, blah, blah, blah. You hear them going, um, I don't think that was as effective as they might have liked. I don't know that um, that was a good strategic move. I was laughing my ass off. That was a disaster. And the fun part for me was that was a disaster that we created. We made that happen. There were plenty of times where they just stupidly did dumb things that helped us. But there were many other times... The stipulations, this situation, where basically we made it happen. We didn't stumble in or get lucky. We made it happen. And that's an extremely satisfying feeling.
0: That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I begin a deep dive into each day of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Tarricone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.